If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1, and we are going to take another chunk of of uh, the whole birth. Now we're getting into the birth of Jesus. Out of all the stories in the Bible, probably the most well-known story is the birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, you can go into almost any major retailer months before Christmas and buy a nativity set. And that nativity set is designed to picture the story of Jesus's birth. And while nativities that are sold in the store are a little bit tortured because they don't represent the true biblical chronology, they have the magi there with the angel and with the shepherds. Remember, the angel appeared, then the shepherd, and then later on after Joseph and Mary moved into a house in Bethlehem, the Magi came. And the Bible doesn't mention any animals. But other than that, they put all the right pieces, kind of smash them into a little setting so that we can kind of be reminded that Jesus came and was born on Christmas Day. And amazingly, unbelievers who would never set foot in a church or read a Bible or kind of do anything religious on purpose, sing Christmas hymns with great words in them. And they sing them, though, because it's just kind of what you do at Christmas. I mean, it goes along with the decorations and the present swapping and and the festivities at that time of year. And, and a lot of times the Christmas story is just relegated to myth uh, kind of on the same par as Santa Claus, and oftentimes it is eclipsed by Santa Claus and really given less significance. Well, as we press on in Luke's gospel this morning, we begin to see the real significance of the Christmas story. We have learned that Luke's gospel starts out with the narrative of the conception of John the Baptist. And if you remember... John the Baptist's father was Zacharias. He was a priest, older, and his wife was barren. She was older and advanced in years. Her name was Elizabeth. And an angel visited Zacharias while he was ministering in the temple, while he was offering up incense, and while he was there all alone in the holy place, the angel appeared to him, told him that his son was going to, first that he was going to have a son, and that his son was going to be named John. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah, and his wife Elizabeth in her old age would conceive and give birth to this son. But Zacharias doubted the word of God that the angel delivered to him. And he gives a couple excuses. You know, I'm old and uh, my wife is advanced in years and she's barren. And this showed a serious lack of faith in God's word because he, as a priest, knew the Old Testament. And he had plenty of examples from the Old Testament. For instance, the life of Abraham and Sarah, knowing that God was able to have a woman who in our estimation was not able to have children to actually have a child. He could perform that miracle, and he did perform that miracle. But here, Zacharias, even though he's a priest, even though he's in the holy place, he doesn't believe the word of God. 
And so God strikes him deaf and mute. Because after all, what more do you want? I've sent an angel to you. You have the Old Testament examples. You're in the holy place. The angel materializes. He tells you the word of the Lord. And you say, how can I know this for certain? What else do you want me to do? I sent you an angel. And so he loses his ability to speak. And I think the ability to hear until John, his son, is born. Elizabeth, though, at this time is quite excited because at that point in history, in that culture, if you were barren, you were thought cursed by God. And so she had to live with that stigma all of her life. And now she is so rejoicing that she just withdraws from society to enjoy her pregnancy to praise God, to be thankful that God has taken away her disgrace from among men. And this is where we pick up the story from where we left off last week. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and following. The text reads, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child should be called the son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, did you notice anything in that narrative? Did you notice anything familiar from the narrative we studied last week? Did you notice that Luke first introduces both parents? Did you notice that both women were not expecting to have a child? One is a virgin, one is too old to have children and barren. Did you notice that the angel Gabriel appears to both, bringing them a special message from God? Did you notice that both Zacharias and Mary are troubled when they see the angel? And did you notice that the angel says the same thing to both of them, do not be afraid? And did you notice that both Zacharias and Mary are told that they will have a son? And did you notice that God names both sons? And did you notice that both Zacharias and Mary are told their son will be great? And did you notice that both of them ask a question? Zacharias asks, how will I know this for certain? Mary asks, how will this be? Now, that is a pretty coincidental little list of parallelism, isn't it? 
As a matter of fact, it seems that Luke purposely puts these two stories together side by side to show us and teach us some very important lessons. Of course, last week we saw the consequences of unbelief, how the whole text is driven by the very unbelief of Zacharias. And in this text, we see the exact opposite. While Zacharias is a example of how not to be an example of how not to be in the text this more before us, we see Mary as an example of how to be Mary's belief in what the angel says is 180 degrees different from Zacharias. So from our text this morning, Luke gives you four truths from God that you must believe in order to give him glory. And the first is this. You must believe that God's choices are not your choices. Look at verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Let's stop there. Nazareth? I mean, we all know the great prophecies of Nazareth, right? Wrong, there isn't any. We all know the great significance of Nazareth up to this point, all the theology tied in with that place, right? No, there isn't any. Nazareth, a very strange place. Do you remember what Nathaniel said to Philip when Philip came to Nathaniel and said, Nathaniel, we've found him of who the law and the prophets spoke about. We've found the Messiah. And Nathaniel said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Because Nazareth was nowhere. It wasn't the city of the king. It wasn't the city of anything. It was just a place up north. Wasn't even anywhere near Jerusalem. It was kind of a, just a despised town. It was on the trade route and people stopped there. Kind of the 7-Eleven town of the trade route. And people didn't respect it. There was nothing significant about it. In John 7:42, we know that the Jews understood that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And you might ask yourself, okay, if I was God and I was going to pick some parents for the Messiah and I knew that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, then I would pick somebody in Bethlehem or at least close by, you know, maybe Jerusalem because it's a city of the king. But in Nazareth, 75 miles away out in the boonies. Why would, why would God pick some place that was so far away? Jerusalem is the place that the king was going to rule. Bethlehem was the place he was supposed to be born. But no, God chose Nazareth, a very unlikely spot. A very obscure city, which had no significance to the jews in fact it was a common derogatory title the jews gave to jesus the nazarene and even when paul appeared before 
Felix at Caesarea, when he was being accused by the lawyer of Ananias, the high priest, the lawyer said this in Acts 24, 5, for we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world, a little hyperbole there, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that was like, you know, the lowest term that they could deliver. He's one of those Nazarene guys. Not to be confused with the Nazarite. No, to be confused with what they saw as a false Messiah who was crucified, and rightly so. Now, how strange it is that God would pick the parents of the Messiah from such an obscure and despised city, and stranger still that God would pick parents for the Messiah who lived so far away from the city he had to be born in. It's not something we would have done if we were in charge, but it's exactly what God chose to do because God wanted Jesus to be born in a very humble and obscure place, a city of no significance. At least his parents to come from there. He was born in Bethlehem. Look at verse 27. The text continues saying that Gabriel was sent to Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The text is unclear as to whether the phrase of descendants of David refers to Mary or Joseph. It can be taken both ways. It seems from the genealogies that both of them are descended from David. So no matter who the phrase refers to, it's correct. And... It is easy to understand why Joseph and Mary needed to be of the descendants of David, because back in Genesis 49, 10, when Jacob is giving out blessings to his son, he says to his son, Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That was the first major prophecy to say there will be a king and a kingdom and it will come from Judah and never depart. Not only that. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and following, Nathan the prophet comes and gives the, some words to David, which is called the Davidic covenant. And in that covenant, David is told that his son, that he will have, his descendant, will be none other than the son of God and will rule and reign forever. And this is something That we would have chosen, we would have chosen, you know, some parents that were of royal line. I mean, that's kind of obvious. But what about a virgin? Would it ever have occurred to you to have an unmarried woman give birth to the Messiah? You know, you don't even think of anything like that. That, That's impossible. Those things, quote, don't happen, right? Virgins do not have babies. And so we would never even consider such a thing. The royal line, fine. Nazareth, hmm. Virgin, absolutely not. You know, we could conceive of maybe somehow they're going to get down to Bethlehem and have a child down there, but a virgin, hardly And yet God chose a virgin to give birth to Christ. But see, in the eyes of the world, things like this are impossible. If you have a worldview that is devoid of God or has a faulty view of God, you think 
a lot of times that God needs to fit into your box. And so you never expect him to do the things he does because in your mind, he is a God who is kind of short on power and short on ability, not a God of miracles, not a God of the impossible. And that is why when you live your life, you're anxious, you're fretting, you're worrying because the God that you worship is really not the God who's able to do it for you. He can't do it. But that's not the God of the Bible. And it just so happens that in Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and his name would be called God with us. Matthew quotes this. Matthew writing to Jews points out this prophecy they would have been familiar with. But Luke writing to Gentiles who would not be familiar with the Old Testament leaves it out. Look at verse 28. The text continues in coming in. He said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, if you have any background in Roman Catholicism, this verse is significant because this is the verse for Hail Marys. If you know about Hail Marys, how many people know about Hail Marys? There you go. A lot of us do. Most of us do. Yeah. Hail Mary is a prayer. You say it's attached to a necklace called a rosary where there's a crucifix crucifix and then different wooden beads and each of those beads you you pray uh, a different prayer or say a different thing there's a couple little prayers you say the apostles creed you say the lord's prayer you say the hail mary prayer and then you do it over again as a matter of fact if you've ever heard the phrase knock on wood well it comes from praying the rosary which had wooden beads interesting huh so somebody told me to knock on wood, what they'd really be telling me is, is go pray the rosary. So be careful using that phrase. Now look at here. You ask yourself, well, I don't see in this text anything about praying. I mean, I, it's just the angel just came and greeted her. Well, it's interesting that one of the Catholic saints, father Padre Pio said that the Hail Mary prayer was, quote, the Christian's greatest weapon, end quote. Think about that. St. Louis de Montfort said the rosary, quote, is the most powerful prayer to touch the heart of Jesus, our Redeemer, who so loves his mother, end quote. And it's a necklace. And you're thinking, how could that be? You know, how could these couple little prayers, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Hail Mary be the greatest weapon the Christian has? The Hail Mary prayer actually reads this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the prayer is based on verse 28 here, and it's also based on verse 42. If you look down, you'll see that when Mary visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth cries out, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And those two verses, Luke 1, 28 and 42 are the basis of the Hail Mary prayer. The Greek literally reads, greetings, favored one. When the angel appears, it's greetings, favored one. Or you could even stretch it to say, greetings, one who is highly favored. But no doubt, there is no doubt that Mary was favored by God. 
Mary was chosen out of all the women who have ever lived to give birth to the Messiah. There is no doubt about that. But if you're wondering how in the world can they take these two verses and turn them into the Christian's greatest weapon and a means of grace, and what I mean by that is this. They believe that when you say the Hail Mary prayer, that it actually imparts grace to you. It's kind of a spiritual receptacle that whenever you need help in trial or whatever, you plug into that prayer and you get energized by God's grace. You receive God's grace from praying that prayer. Well, this is how they get it. It's because Jerome, who was one of the early church fathers, he translated the Bible into Latin. You've probably heard of the phrase, the Latin Vulgate. Well, the Latin Vulgate has in this spot, Ave Gratia Plena. Now, we have just learned a couple weeks ago about sola gratia, right? By grace alone. Well, gratia plena means full of grace. And so what they did is they took the Vulgate, they looked at it and said, Whoa, Mary is full of grace. She's overflowing with grace. So if you pray to her, she's able to give you that fullness of grace. But there are many problems with this interpretation. First of all, the text does not say that Gabriel's greeting is to be turned into a prayer. Secondly, the text does not say Elizabeth's response to Mary's greeting is to be turned into a prayer. Third, it is heresy to pray to anyone other than God. Fourth, Mary is not the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, according to 1 Timothy 2, 5. Fifth, Christians' greatest weapon against sin and Satan is the word of God, according to Ephesians six seventeen. And sixth and finally, the meaning of the text is simply this, that Mary was favored by God because she was chosen to give birth to the Messiah. Mary was not full of grace and special, so God chose her. no. Mary was chosen by God, and that is what made her favored and special. And that is why the angel goes on to say, if you look in the text, the Lord is with you. Which is another way of saying God's special favor and blessing is upon you now because he has chosen you to be the mother of the Messiah. And notice how Mary responds in verse 29 to the angel's announcement. But. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. It seems that Mary, like Zacharias, when she saw the angel, was scared because the angel says that in a moment. Do not be afraid. And that's normal. But it seems like she the text says she was also perplexed. She was confused. Favored of God? What do you mean? Uh, Mary being a godly young woman, being a, a woman who who was humble, who knew that she was a sinner, knew she was unworthy before God, all of a sudden has this angel appear and says, Hail, favored one, or greetings, favored one. And she's thinking, what? Me? Favored? And the angel, wanting to make sure she understood that she was favored, repeats the same thing again in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And what do you learn about God from this? You learn that God's choices are not your choices. 
I mean, if it was up to us, we probably wouldn't have picked parents for Jesus that lived in Nazareth. If it was up to us, we wouldn't have picked a virgin. But it was up to God and he did. You know, some of us who used to watch TV a long time ago know of the show called Father Knows Best. Well, you need to believe that God knows best because he does. And you might choose for yourself a lot of things, but they are not God's choices. I mean, if we had it our way, wouldn't you choose to be, you know, wealthy and have lots of things and have some fame and some prestige and, you know, anything you wanted? Well, sure. But God chooses what is best for you. He chooses some people to be poor and some people to be sick. He chooses some people to be obscure. He chooses others to be rich and healthy and famous. But know this, God chooses, not us. And why? Because he's God. Like Psalm 115, 3 says, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And that's what we see him doing in this text. He does whatever he chooses. You need to believe it. It's true. God, our father, knows what is best and his choices are always best for you and your life. And do you know what this means? It means that your choices are not best. You know, we tend to be like little kids, you know, let loose at a banquet. And if we had it our way, we'd run for the Twinkies. We'd run for the junk food. We'd run for the candy and the punch and all that garbage. And we'd suck it all down and get sick. We are the exact same way. If God gave us what we thought was best for us and let us choose what was best for our lives, we would get sick spiritually. We would so stuff ourselves with the world and the things of the world and things that would harm us. We would wander away from God, forget about God, trust in our riches and our power and our fame. And so that's why God chooses for you what he wants for you. He chooses your parents. He chooses your health. He chooses your gifts. He chooses your location, your job. And the world you live in. And when you are driving down the freeway and all of a sudden there's that clunking sound, you realize you have a flat tire. Guess who chose that for you? When you try to live a godly life and are persecuted because of it, guess who orchestrated that? When you are out there in the world and, and you are, have neighbors and friends and family members who maybe get sick or maybe get cancer, maybe even die of it or heart disease, guess who determined the number of that person's days? It was God. Have you ever wondered why some people can eat anything they want and their cholesterol doesn't even flinch? And other people live off celery in skinless chicken with no salt. And they're on cholesterol medication and it's through the roof. You know, why is it that some people can just eat anything they want and they look like they got out of a concentration camp and another person looks at a, some food from a hundred yards and gains a pound? And you may wonder, why me? Well, why did you choose this for me? Because this is what's best for you. God knows what's best and his choices are not always your choices, but they're the best choices. And it was God's choice to pick a couple 
in an obscure town who weren't even married yet. That was God's choice and it was the best choice. And so you need to believe that God's choices are best for you too. believe it. Secondly, you must believe that God's timing is not your timing. Look at verse 31 and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now, let me just ask you this. Here, the text obviously says that Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah. But let me ask you, if you had your thing, things your way, wouldn't you have had the Messiah come earlier in history? I mean, if you lived during the time right before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, when they were all camped in battle array around there, wouldn't you be wishing, I wish the Messiah would come back right now and set up his kingdom? I would have. As a matter of fact, if I lived in Persia and I knew all of my kinfolk were all spread all over the Medo-Persian empire and, and, and Jerusalem was burnt and sacked and destroyed... You know what I would want? I would want the Messiah to come back right then and set up his kingdom. You know, if Alexander the Great was in his rule and he was marching through and destroying and killing and Hellenizing the whole Mediterranean world, trying to impart Greek culture on every place he went, I would pray that God would send the Messiah right then, wouldn't you? But God waits. He waits for the Babylonian Empire to come and go. The Medo-Persian Empire to come and go. The Greek Empire to come and go. And then right in the pinnacle, when Rome just has its tentacles in everything, he sends the Messiah. That was his time. That was his time. And you know what? The disciples wanted Jesus so bad, even when he did come in the middle of the Roman dominance, they wanted him to set up his kingdom, didn't they? No, they thought, you know, I mean, when Jesus started displaying power, they were starting to drool. It's like, all right, get him, Lord. You know, should we command fire to come down out of heaven, consume him? I mean, you know, let's set up the kingdom. And they couldn't understand because Jesus was Jesus was was living his life. And he was so humble and he was being persecuted by all these people. And the disciples thought, boy, he's got power. He can raise the dead. He can calm the sea. He can change water into wine. You know, he can heal the blind. You know, the guy can do anything. But he's not taken over. And then Jesus dies and they're all confused and they don't know why he's he had to die. And finally, they, they get a clue. Oh, he had to die for sins. But even after he died and was buried and rose again in the third day, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, right before Jesus ascends, after they've spent time with him and he's taught them some more things and they're kind of all charged up and squared away with their theology, they ask him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right now, are you going to do it right now? Because see, in their mind, they're thinking, okay, all right, we, we know we were confused. We didn't have the whole death part and burial and resurrection part down, but now we see it. And so now that you've got all that hard part, that icky part out of the way, let's do it now. We're ready to rule and reign. I mean, isn't that what you would have said? Okay, let's do it, man. Let's rule and reign forever and ever. But what does Jesus do? He ascends to heaven, says, chill out, preach the gospel. Now, 
I know if it was up to me, I would have been just like those disciples looking for Jesus to restore the kingdom right then. But think of the consequences if he did. The church hadn't even been started yet. The Gentiles had not even heard the gospel. Most Jews had not even heard the gospel. And all those millions of people who have been saved ever since the day of Pentecost, all the way up until this very day, would have never been saved if you had it your way and I had it mine. God's timing is not our timing, but it is the best timing. The angel tells Mary, look at verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus, which means God is salvation. He will be great. And up to this point, she's probably thinking, oh, good, I'm going to have a son. He's got a great name. You know, the, the Hebrew equivalent is Joshua. You know, he's going to have a, a, a name of, you know, maybe jo- named after Joshua, the high priest. That's good. That's good. He's going to be great. That's even better. But the next words would have just been the hammer to her mind. And he will be called son of the most high. Now, Mary wasn't a rabbi, but she knew there's only one most high. As a matter of fact, it's a term that used, it's used of God 41 times. Mary is going to have a son who is going to be the son of God almighty. God wanted Mary to understand that she was going to give birth to the Messiah and who exactly that Messiah was. He wasn't just a good guy. He was son of the most high. And the angel makes this clear in the last half of verse 32. Look there in verse 33, where he continues saying, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This right here is a reference to something that almost every Jew knew about. This is what is called the Davidic covenant that I mentioned earlier. It appears in second Samuel seven verses 12 and following and in first Chronicles chapter 17. Let me just read you the portion from first Chronicles 17. This is Ezra recording the same Davidic covenant. This is um, this is what Nathan the prophet told David in his latter days. He says this, 1 Chronicles 17, 11, when your days are fulfilled and you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Did you catch that little word? Forever, forever, forever. That was the promise. And so what the angel does is the angel just takes a few of these phrases right out of the Davidic covenant to let Mary know this is the Messiah, son of God, the one who has an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom. And sure, out of all the women of all the ages, God seemingly should have picked somebody sooner, somebody married, maybe somebody more famous. But no, he picks this obscure woman in an obscure place who isn't even married yet. 
And if you would have lived before then, you probably would have chosen, uh, you know, a better time, quote, for the Messiah. But it wouldn't have been. God waited until there was a universal language. Everybody spoke the language of Alexander the Great. And he waited until there was a universal road system. The Romans were fanatic road builders. They came in and they built roads everywhere. And you know, a lot of those roads are so well built that they still exist today. If you go around into the whole Mediterranean basin, they still have the same roads. They packed the cobblestone so tight. They're still there to this very day. And you know, you've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, they all lead away from Rome too. And what's interesting is, is Rome built all those roads because they wanted to make sure they had control. In order to get their troops and supplies from one place to another, they built really nice roads all over the Mediterranean world. And so God waited until there was a universal language and a universal travel system. And the words of Paul in Galatians 4, 4, he said, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At God's perfect time, God's time is always best. You know, some people are saying, you know, I, I can't get, you know, pregnant. We've tried and tried and we can't get pregnant. It's just God's timing for you. Other people are saying we weren't trying. We got pregnant. That's God's timing for you, too. Some people are saying, you know, I, I just can't find a spouse. I can't find a husband. I can't find a wife. Well, that's God's timing. And you need to realize that every detail of every life, every problem, every persecution, everything you face is God's timing for you. You want something now? It's not your time. You don't want something? It comes. Why? Because God's sovereign. You're not. You need to believe that his timing is best. So instead of chafing against it, instead of fretting against it, Accept it because it's true. Third, you must believe that God's ways are not your ways. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, Mary is not doubting. She is not doubting what the angel said, like Zacharias. Zacharias said, how will I know this for certain? Zacharias is acting for more proof. All Mary is saying is this. Okay, I'm going to have a son. Uh, He's going to be great. He's actually going to be really great. Son of the Most High. It's about as great as you can get. Uh, Okay, I understand that. He's going to be the very Messiah, the very one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. Okay. All I want to know is this. How is this going to work out? I mean, do I need to like pressure Joseph to marry me? Should I just relax? Wait till the betrothal is complete. And then after we get married, I'll end up getting pregnant and I'll have a son. She doesn't know. She just wants to know how it's going to be, how it's going to work out. Because after all, virgins don't ever have babies, except in this one case. Look at verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. You see, this is what you need to realize. Jesus needed to be born of a woman so he could make atonement. So he would be fully human and make atonement for sin. But he needed to be born of God so that he would be perfectly holy, the holy child. Because if Jesus wasn't a holy, a perfectly holy child, he could not make atonement for sins. And if he had a human father, and since sin is passed down through the father, he would have what? Been had a sin nature. He would have been unholy. 
He would have had the sin of Adam imputed to him. But since his father was God and his mother was Mary, he was able to be fully man and fully God, the holy child. And at this point, Mary must have realized, if she hadn't already, that the angel was telling her that she would not have a normal pregnancy. She would be pregnant by a divine act of God. Matthew describes it as this. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. God's power just overshadowed her and she was pregnant. Now, is this the way you would have done it? I mean, when you're talking about ways, you're about, no, 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 I wouldn't have done that. I probably would have found, you know, a nice little a godly married couple in Bethlehem and, you know, had them have a child the normal way and use that for Jesus. You see, a lot of times we think we know what's ba- ways best, right? And we even get angry and frustrated and anxious when we can't do our way. But we need to realize God's ways are not our ways. Imagine how Mary felt after being told of all this. Surely she was amazed. Surely she thought, whoa, this is incredible. She was still probably a little afraid, probably still a little speechless. And in her mind, she was probably stunned. And you know what? She probably thought, whoa, 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 whoa. This is, uh, this is not good. I mean, this is good, but this is not good. Because the Old Testament says that if you commit adultery... And at that time, among the Jews, if you were betrothed, that was a legally binding thing. You had to get a divorce in order to get out of betrothal. So if all of a sudden she's pregnant while betrothed, that would be considered adultery and she could be stoned to death. And probably she's thinking of this. She's probably also thinking, who can I tell? I mean, who could she tell? Who would you tell? Hey, guess what? An angel appeared to me. He told me I was going to have a baby while a virgin. Guess what? He's going to be the son of God. Guess what? He's going to be the king of kings. The very Messiah whose kingdom will have no end. What do you think? You need treatment. (laughs) You need treatment. What are you talking about? That is so ludicrous and fantastical and unheard of that can't happen that's an impossibility come back to reality as i said the first service slap out of it instead of snap it was a mistake i do that frequently i know you know look at verse 36 and behold even your relative elizabeth was also conceived has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. This is what's great about this little verse right here. Here Mary is. She doesn't, she's blown away by the angel. She's been told she's going to give birth to the Son of God while a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. She's engaged to a man. She knows, she knows no one's going to believe her. She has no one to turn to because no one would believe her except for one person. Who would ever believe such a story? Her cousin Elizabeth, who just happened to be pregnant miraculously after the announcement of the same angel to her husband. And that's this right here, I think, is included to show us that God has grace and just extra kind to Mary. So the angel just kind of drops this name in there, you know, 
Elizabeth, your cousin, she's in her sixth month. She who was thought of barren, having a baby. And you know what's neat? If you look down, look at verse 39. After the angel leaves, it says, Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country of the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth immediately. As soon as the angel left, who could she go to? Who could she tell? One person, the angel drops the name, off she goes and stays with Elizabeth for three months. Somebody who would believe her. Somebody who could rejoice with her. But God wants Mary to know this, not only as proof and confirmation of what God can do, but I think also so that Mary would have somebody to talk to. And so she's able to go, have a friend, be comforted by Elizabeth. Now, the angel Gabriel told Mary that God was going to do something that had never been done before. Ever. She, as a virgin, is going to give birth to a son. And so look at the angel's words in verse 37. The angel gives this very encouraging little bit of theology to her just to remind her. In all of these things that are going on, for nothing is impossible with God. That is so great, isn't it? That is the great leveler of all fears, of all trials, of all circumstances. If you believe in God and you know he's the God of the impossible, it's going to be okay. Because God can do anything. He may not do everything, or he may do what you hope he does, but he does it at a different time in a different way, but he can do it. He is the God of the impossible. Listen, God does not do things your way because he can do anything he wants. And he usually does things in ways that we think are impossible. In Isaiah chapter 55, 8 through 11, this is what Isaiah says. Speaking for God, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire without succeeding in the matter for which I, I sent it. Now, I want you to know the distance between heaven and earth is very large. And that is how far God's ways and thoughts and timing are different from yours. And so how does a person respond to this? I mean, now we know that God is this way. You know, God, the very God we worship here on Sunday morning, the God you profess to believe in is this kind of God. How do you respond? Our fourth point. Look at verse 38. Mary said the first thing, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. This is the first thing we learn about a proper response. You first need to have a proper view of yourself. You are a bond slave. This is not a servant girl. This is a bond slave. This is the lowest person on the social totem pole. And this is how she sees herself. She just totally humbles herself and submits to God's will. The second thing not only do you need to see yourself as a bond slave of the Lord, secondly, we learn from Mary's response that we must be willingly to submit ourselves to whatever the word of God says. May it be done to me, she says, according to your word. 
The sooner you believe and humbly submit to the word of God, the better your life will be. The sooner you believe that God's timing is not your timing and God's ways are not your ways and God's choices are not your choices, the better you will be able to cope with reality. Because God's timings, ways, and choices are not yours. They're his. And it's our job to realize we are bond slaves and that we are to humbly submit to his word. So as you leave here today, I would encourage each and every one of you, learn the lesson here. Don't be like Zacharias. Be like Mary. Listen to the word of God. See what God says he's going to do. Even if it's impossible, believe it. For he is the God of the impossible And do according to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this narrative. And there's so much here, so much we even didn't mention. But Father, we are so glad that you are the God of the impossible. Help us to remember as we leave here that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your choices are not our choices. Father, your timing is not our timing. But Father, we know it's best because you are God and everything you do is perfect. Father, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, no matter what trials come our way, help us to remember that we have been purchased with a price that we are no longer our own, but we are bond slaves of yours, and we are to humbly submit to your word. May that be the characteristic of all of our lives as we leave here until we die and go to be with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.